Good morning, everyone. Is this working now? All right. That was just my way of getting you to stop your conversation. Let's begin. Uh, I'm afraid we have to stay on our original schedule, so we will be ending this session at 11.30 as originally scheduled. Uh, so let's begin without further ado, a discussion of the evolution of institutions and ideology in the post-communist era. Um, uh, my name is Gerard Alexander. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Virginia. I will be moderating this panel uh, ruthlessly. Uh, we do have to stay on schedule. Uh, I've been provided with signs I can give to my speakers to let them know when their 20 minutes is coming to a close or closing. And I can assure them, warn them, uh, that those signs will be invoked. I'm going to introduce our speakers each as they come up to the podium. Uh, our first speaker this morning is well known to many here. Paul Hollander received a PhD in sociology from Princeton University. He was, for much of his career, a professor of sociology at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and remains an associate of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. Forgive the following list of his books, but they are how he is known to us and has influenced us. He's the author of, among other works, Soviet and American Society, A Comparison, Political Pilgrims, Western Intellectuals in Search of the Good Society, Anti-Americanism, Political Will and Personal Belief, the Decline and Fall of Soviet Communism, Discontents, Postmodern and Postcommunist, and most recently, The Only Superpower. Please join me in welcoming Paul Hollander. Well, these remarks which you will hear will also be published as a part of a position paper by the Cato Institute. So this is a few highlights, I suppose, or what I try to provide of what I'm going to say in that much longer position paper about the Western, mostly the Western, but also the Eastern responses to the collapse of Soviet communism. Now, today I will be speaking mostly about the Western responses in this short period of time, and in particular about Western intellectuals, which have been my main preoccupation for much of my professional career, the bizarre political attitudes of Western intellectuals. And I will be saying something about the divergent perceptions in the West of Nazism and communism, and also about the long-standing perceptions of communist systems and how they influenced uh, the responses to the collapse. And finally, time permitting, what I call the strategies of evasion, meaning evading uh, conf a confrontation with the significance or the meaning of the collapse of Soviet communism. Well, the, the first obvious, I think fairly obvious point that uh, the responses to the collapse in the West were in large measure determined by prior perceptions and attitudes toward perceptions of and attitudes towards the communist systems. Those critical, of course, rejoiced upon their fall, like myself, but they, we were not necessarily in a better position to understand or explain why it happened and why at the time when it did, sympathizers were even more at a loss to interpret this event. American public opinion in particular has remained largely indifferent to the collapse. 
and subsequent developments, Americans knew little about communist countries to begin with, whether they were pro or anti. I think ignorance was prevalent on both sides. And I think that uh, communist countries and their policies have remained a matter of indifference, except during the most critical moments of the Cold War, when there was a possibility of uh, armed confrontation with the Soviet Union. The media has always developed very little attention to communist affairs and also to the collapse and its aftermath. And, uh, of course, weeks go by. One can look at the New York Times or Washington Post or the major TV networks, and weeks go by without any reference to any of the former communist countries, unless there is the blood flowing on the street somewhere. So massive ignorance persists both among the public at large and among the more educated segments. And I don't know if I should refer to my former students as belonging to the more educated segments, but I was always astonished by the depth of ignorance among them about such matters. Uh, public awareness uh, of the large-scale atrocities and human rights violations in communist states is minimal, especially in comparison to the Holocaust and Nazi Germany. These differences are also symbolized right here in Washington by the, between, by the contrast between the extremely well-funded and impressive Holocaust Museum in Washington and the absence of any corresponding uh, institution devoted to the victims of communism, although there is such an organization and I am on the board of it, but it's not very well-funded and they managed to unveil a sculpture a year ago. That's how far it went. Uh, so uh, these are some of the symptoms of the matters I am discussing. As to the roots of these attitudes and asymmetries, they go back a long time. That is to say, the asymmetries between the Western assessments of Nazism and communism, they go back to the Cold War, the Vietnam War, and the discreditation of anti-communism by McCarthyism and by the Vietnam War. Each of these phenomena contributed to the rise of what came to be called anti-anti-communism. And I would still like to know who came up with the term, maybe Sidney Hook, but I'm not sure, anti-anti-communism. That was the belief that while communism was not exactly commendable, anti-communism has done much more harm and is more disreputable and distasteful than communism. Anti-communism was also often characterized as obsessive or irrational. Now, the roots of these Western responses to the collapse go back even further in time to the long tradition of animosity towards commerce and capitalism on the part of Western intellectuals and among idealistic and educated people. This animosity led to the benefit of doubt or outright sympathy towards political systems which were anti-capitalist, which denounced greed and the profit motive <coughs> and pro pro proclaimed their goal as the creation of more humane, just, and egalitarian societies and unselfish human beings. The Soviet Union was, of course, the first of such societies. <coughs> but the, it was followed by several others. In Eastern Europe, of course, thanks to the arrival of the Soviet troops, 
<coughs> and then in the third world. Now, the past misperceptions and idealizations of these countries and their political systems had an unmistakable and apparently ineradicable influence on the responses to their collapse or partial transformation. <coughs> Long-standing beliefs, even if ill-conceived, are difficult to discard, especially when they are integral to the sense of identity of people. These misperceptions and misjudgments had some recurring patterns and components, which to this day are discernible. They were seen as striving to, ride, to, ide, to realize the ideas of Marx and Engels, by doing so attaining a high level of social and economic equality and social justice. They were, just to, they were judged to be enjoying broad popular support and legitimacy. <clears throat> they were supposed to be societies. Perhaps this was the most alluring aspect in which the perennial conflict between personal and public interests was largely transcended, or in the process of being transcended, and in which most social pathologies aff afflicting capitalist societies were also being eradicated, or had already vanished. Most of these assessments were, of course, based on predisposition, wishful thinking, <coughs> or the assertions of communist propaganda, as well as conducted tours. But most importantly, they were based on a profound disaffection with the societies where these intellectuals and opinion makers lived. And this dissatisfaction led to susceptibility to the attractions of communist societies, seen as a promising alternative to the corruptions, injustices, and irrationalities of their own. And this impasse is still with us Although, of course, over the years it has found fewer outlets in the sense of the ability to point to a society and say that this is it, you know, where the good things are happening, but now we have Venezuela as the last of such substitutes, and time permitting, I will say a few more words about it. Although many of these beliefs came to be scared down or discarded over time, they left a residue. Even the qualified disillusionment with communist systems left intact the rejection and critiques of Western societies, and especially the United States. Here it is also important to note that the contrast between the so-called new and old left attitudes toward the Soviet Union has been greatly exaggerated. The new left of the 1960s and its spiritual successors certainly lost interest and enthusiasm about the Soviet Union, but this didn't lead to taking a more searching or critical position, especially about the ideals which the Soviet Union and other communist systems claimed to attempt to realize. Now, there were a few major attributes or foundations of this, of this syndrome I am describing, <coughs> this uh, ineradicable Western sympathy towards uh, communist or state socialist systems. <clears throat> First of all, the Soviet Union was not a capitalist society, and this, in fact, gave it a huge moral credit, so to speak. Whatever else was wrong with it, it wasn't capitalist. That was one general belief. <clears throat> Secondly, it was an adversary of the United States, and as such, a restraint on what these people perceived as American imperialism as well as a defender of the more 
authentic or seemingly more authentic third world revolutionary countries. And finally, uh, the people I am alluding to believe that even if many things went wrong in the Soviet Union, it did think to realize, did, did, did search to realize, at least initially, the hopes and ideas of Marxism. <clears throat> many examples of all this uh, <coughs> could be mentioned, but uh, time doesn't permit. At any rate, uh, one of the major figures, I think, which, to which many of these remarks apply was Eric Hobsbawm, the famous historian. Now, what about this, what I call the strategies of evasion, these attitudes which evolved or emerged to deal with and evade the problems created by the collapse of Soviet communism for those who thought favorably about it or had an emotional investment in it, and, that, and especially about the ideas or ideas it had once supposedly sought to realize. <coughs> well, one way the problem was approached on the part of many was to argue that uh, somehow capitalism was also responsible for the, <coughs> excuse me, capitalism was responsible for the collapse of communism, <coughs> that it tainted, tainted communism. <coughs> through through uh, global global trade and uh, <coughs> excuse me globalization, that somehow capitalism corrupted uh, communism as it has corrupted everything else. Then then we had moral equivalence, but similar to the first point that uh, well you are familiar with moral equivalence which evolved during the Cold War. And the basic point of moral equivalence is that. Uh, there are problems and uh, inequities on both sides, and certainly uh, Western countries uh, are, are in opposition to uh, lecture the socialist ones about uh, <coughs> proper ethical political behavior. <coughs> and again, um, the main emphasis uh, in the post-communist period was to insist that uh, the great evils of capitalism remain in place and demand utmost critical attention, so there is no reason. It's a waste of time to uh, probe the defects of communism. Another popular response was, especially among academic intellectuals in this country, to assert that the communist systems had nothing or next to nothing to do with Marxism. Therefore, they didn't bring disrepute to Marxism. And this, this, of course, was not limited to American leftists. Uh, this was also true in Europe. I mean, in Western Europe, not in Eastern Europe. Although, actually, I have noticed uh, on my visits to Hungary that there is a kind of a minor re-emergence of Marxism and anti-Americanism. But that, that's another big topic. So uh, I think this was very important, that... Uh, the assertion that uh, communism, Soviet communism, had nothing to do with Marxism and didn't discredit Marxism. Therefore, Marxism still remains a good tool for analyzing the defects of Western societies, and uh, also Marxism uh, remains uh, useful in the third world. 
attitudes of this kind had much in common with uh, what the old social psychologist, the late Leon Festinger, called cognitive dissonance. A large portion of Western intellectuals believe that the, a system like the Soviet Union, even if no longer idealized, represented a valid and successful path to modernization, and it was in some respects morally superior to capitalist West. The Soviet and similar systems were also considered stable and durable. Their abrupt collapse constituted what Festinger called cognitive dissonance, given the prior belief in their durability and superior moral qualities. By contrast, uh, the same Western intellectuals anticipated uh, with relish the impending crisis and collapse of Western capitalism, which are fair to materialize. I suppose the recent economic crisis uh, <coughs> gave more fuel to this line of thinking. So the situation was redefined. The denial that the Soviet Union were Marxist or socialist was at the center of this denial. And of course, we had earlier other kinds of deniers, as in the so-called revisionist school of Soviet studies, when they were quibbling about how many numbers, how many people were killed under Stalin, and for what reasons. This was also, actually, this became popular before the collapse, but uh, it extended, I believe, its influence after the collapse, these arguments that, uh, you know, the Soviet purges were just a form of social mobility, because a lot of people got better jobs thanks to those who were killed. <clears throat> now, there was also a belief at the time when the Soviet Union was approaching collapse that perhaps a new kind of uh, more authentic socialism would emerge <coughs> and that Gorbachev will be the standard bearer of this new socialism, new form of socialism, more authentic socialism reaching back to Leninist principles. And then we also had another exculpatory technique which called the collapse system and its defects Stalinist, thereby transferring the wrongs of the system to an individual. This, of course, was originally the approach taken by Khrushchev in his 20th century speech. A very highly un-Marxist emphasis on the role of individual in the historical process. Now, another indication of the persistence of these sentiments, as I alluded to it earlier, was the new sympathy elicited by some of the new radical leftist political systems, especially Venezuela under Chavez, I suppose Bolivia too under Morelos. You know, people like Bill Ayers uh, delivered the speech at Chavez's side in Venezuela where he told the assembled revolutionaries that education is the motor force of the revolution. And Venezuela have shown the path how to overcome the failings of capitalist education. Well, more, more examples of this kind could be readily provided. Let me just say in conclusion, <coughs> in what I estimate was pro is probably another minute left to me, that the most uh, important way to preserve these political commitments was the human capacity to dissociate ends from means, 
or good intentions from poor results, ideas from reality, theory from practice. This is what Kostler called the doctrine of unshaken foundations. That is to say, when people assign overwhelming moral importance to ends which allow their champions to overlook or dismiss the human costs of their pursuit. These ideas also persist because it's always easier to retain familiar, deeply internalized beliefs and over long periods of time, especially when these ideas become an integral part of a sense of identity of intellectuals uncertain of their social roles and drawn to that of the righteous critic of society. Finally, when political beliefs satisfy important emotional needs and bolster a favorable self-conception, they are likely to endure. Thank you. Dr. Hollander came in at 19 minutes out of the permitted 20. Let him serve as a role model to our other panelists. Uh, our second panelist, Sarah Mendelson, has a PhD in political science from Columbia University. She was a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and since 2007 has been director of the Human Rights and Security Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's also a senior fellow with CSIS's Russia and Eurasia program, which she joined in 2001. At CSIS, she has collaborated on numerous surveys, opinion surveys in Russia, and is the author of a number of works, including Changing Course, Ideas, Politics, and the Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan, Barracks and Brothels, Peacekeepers, and Human Trafficking in the Balkans, and Closing Guantanamo from Bumper Sticker to Blueprint. Uh, let me give a warning in Dr. Mendelssohn's case. It is true that she is a member of the Europe and Central Asia Advisory Committee of the organization Human Rights Watch, but during the Q&A, I will suppress any audience member who attempts to ask about her taste in collectibles, Stalinist or otherwise. Am I the only one who would appreciate a human rights joke at this moment, a human rights watch joke at this moment? <laughs> Dr. Mendelssohn. Thank you, uh I have a PowerPoint, if we can get the screen up. Um, long ago and far away, um, when I was a senior in college, I uh, went to Professor Hollander's office um, to talk to him about American and liberal left's perceptions of Stalin, so it's a great privilege to be here today uh, with him. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you about some work that I've been uh, doing over the last couple of years, and usually this is a presentation that's done with a, a sociologist, uh, Ted Gerber from the University of Wisconsin. He is the data guy. Uh, he's the quantitative person on this team. Uh, so there are some places where, and we have a limited amount of time, where I'm going to be highlighting some numbers for you, and if you have specific questions about the statistical analysis, I'm going to refer you to the person who's not in the room. Um, at CSIS, I run this program, the Human Rights and Security Initiative, where we look at a number of security implications of human rights abuse in a number of contexts. Today, I'm going to be talking about uh, a considerable focus of our work, which focuses on historical or absent memory. Um, let me just give you a quick definition of what absent memory is, and then I'll go back and tell you a bit more about our work. How a state and a society reconciles or not with violent episodes 
of the past has profound yet really underspecified implications for political social development. Uh, we, and by we I mean human rights activists that I work with in Russia um, and in the United States and elsewhere, assume that wanting to look back, wanting to understand what happened in the past, correlates or can lead to a greater appreciation of human rights and, and support for the rule of law. And obviously, if terrible crimes have been committed related to torture, indefinite detention, or disappearance, the ability to prosecute um, has a bearing on the robustness of the, of the law. The preliminary findings that I'm going to discuss from Russia today suggests that this relationship of wanting to look back and rights is actually a little bit more complicated than we had hoped to find. Uh, and we did this work initially with colleagues from uh, the human rights organization in Russia, Memorial. We were trying to identify essentially who among the younger generation of Russians would be possible um, future workers in Memorial. Uh, because if you know anything about Memorial, the average age of those in the organization is hovering somewhere between 65 and 75. So the work that we're doing at CSIS on this includes what I'm going to talk to you today about a 2005 and 2007 survey of Russian youth and their views on, among other things, Stalin. We are currently, that is later today, I'm finishing a survey that looks at young ethnic Russians in Estonia and comparing their views with, eth with ethnic Estonians in Estonia and young Russians in Russia on a variety of these same questions. Later this year, we're going to do a multi-generational survey in Russia on views of, of history. We also have, as part of this work, uh, we're looking at lessons learned from other contexts and at the risk of wandering into that moral equivalence, we think there is something to be learned from colleagues in Argentina and Chile and Northern Ireland and elsewhere, Germany and Poland, and how they've moved the field of memory um, in, in their respective contexts. So the work that we're talking about today draws on these large random sample surveys that first we did focus groups in 2004 and 2007, and then we wrote the survey instrument, and as you can see, these are large uh, uh, random sample surveys that were conducted by the Levada Analytic Center, which is the most reputable uh, polling organization in Russia. Um, and if you'll if you think about it for a moment, the, the young people that were doing the focus groups with and then the surveys could in some ways be considered either the Helsinki generation, right? They're born the eldest at about 1976, or the fall of the Berlin Wall generation, right, with the youngest being born around 1989. Unfortunately, what we find over and over and over again is it's the Putin generation. Uh, these are young people who have really responded to and embraced, internalized a lot of the messages that, the Putin, that Putin himself and other senior uh, Kremlin officials have advanced. Uh, we've written about this in Foreign Affairs and the Washington Quarterly. Um, some of the work that I'm going to be presenting today in my short period of time is uh, still preliminary, and I ask that if, if you are going to cite anything that you, you contact us, uh, contact me. Um, so quickly, I'm going to be walking you through views of young Russians on Russia today, that is Russia's political trajectory. Uh, and by today, I really do mean 05 and 07. We'll see later in 2009 how they, they view Russia today. Uh, we'll be talking about young Russians' views of Stalin. Um, and 
a hypothesis that we had that looking back would, wanting to look back would signal or correlate with those who would be most human rights friendly and uh, what our results were and, and what it means. Um, and just a warning, we end on, on a somewhat somber note, um, but maybe we can um, cheer ourselves up over a question and answer. Um, Russia Today, I probably don't need to describe for this audience um, the various ways in which in the last <clears throat> eight, nine years, political space in Russia has shrunk, uh, whether you're looking at television, uh, elections, parties, uh, NGOs, rampant abuse by uh, the police and the rise of the security services. Okay, So that's a snapshot. When you ask Russians in 05 and 07, and I realize there are people at the back of the room, maybe even in the front of the room, who, who won't be able to read these numbers, what you find is that by 2007, um, a majority, that is 56% of Russians agree, uh, somewhat agree or fully agree, that Russia is currently on the right path. Uh, and you have about 29% in 2007 who fully disagree or somewhat disagree. All right, this is a, this is a complex, or this is a, has a lot of information and in little time, so I'm going to just highlight a few things. We asked a battery of, of questions on how young people think about Stalin. Um, we asked, and I'm, I'm only going to report a few of these results, whether or not they thought Stalin was a wise leader. Um, and in 2005, we found a majority, that is 52%, uh, somewhat or fully agreed with that. By 2007, it was 49%. We asked, and, and this number has been quoted many places, uh, Stalin may have made some mistakes, but he did more good than bad. And in both 2005 and 2007, we find a majority believe that Stalin did more good than bad. Now, we thought, well, okay, maybe they don't know about what happened. Um, Stalin was directly responsible for the imprisonment, torture, and execution, and it should say, of millions of innocent people. Uh, and it's, the question's cut off. We find overwhelming majorities know this. Uh, 72% in 05 and 68% in 07 somewhat agree and fully agree that Stalin was directly responsible. So on the one hand, we have a majority saying that Stalin did more good than bad, but we have an overwhelming majority also saying uh, that, that Stalin was directly responsible. Um, and we, that is our first signal that, in fact, what we see is a tremendous amount of ambivalence in how young people are thinking about Stalin. We had a few other questions that I'm going to run us through um, that give us a sense of the the viewpoints of, of young Russians today. Um, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the, the greatest, it should say, geostrategic catastrophe of the 20th century. This is a statement that Vladimir Putin made in a 2005 State of the Union address. Um, these are the two, 2007 findings. 63% of young Russians uh, agree, somewhat agree, fully agree. Um, we think that this is a nice barometer of, of where... Russians in general, but young Russians are, are uh, how they view and whether or not they agree with the, 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 the worldview that, that Putin is advancing. And later this year we'll know whether or not this, this translates across different generations. We suspect, based on focus groups, which you cannot generalize on, but we're going to test the hypothesis, that in fact 
there is a demographics of memory, and that, in fact, um, the initial hypothesis that we had, which did not bear out, was we thought, and, and I think this is going to be something that Andre picks up more on, the, the, the assumption was that uh, as Russia developed economically, that as people got iPods and skateboards and traveled to the West and drank lattes, that somehow they would become more human rights friendly, more democratic, uh, and we just see none of that in, in, the, in the survey data. Um, what we saw in the focus groups that we did in July, in fact, was in praise of the middle age, that actually the 40-somethings um, may be the generation in Russia that is more sympathetic to democracy and human rights, and we suspect it has nothing to do with economic development. It has to do with where they were when the Soviet Union collapsed, but that's something that we, we need a lot more uh, work on. Okay, so let's, in my remaining time talk a little bit about Young Russians on Remembering. Now, um, we don't have enough time to walk through this in any kind of detail. This is just to say that the hypothesis, and and we're going to do more work on this later this year, we thought that if we we had a, a variety of questions that would suggest to us whether or not young people were eager, or at least some segment of that demographic, were eager to learn more about the past, that they would also correlate with human rights um, friendly views, and that that might be a demographic that Memorial and other human rights organizations might move towards, and that we'd have some understanding of those views by looking at how they thought about Russia's current path, views on Stalin and Soviet collapse, and we asked a, a variety of questions also about views of Memorial, views of the Kremlin-funded uh, youth group NASHI, uh, Democracy and Human Rights. Um, very briefly, and I, we just don't have enough time to go through this, the three questions that we asked to, to measure barometer on whether or not we could consider young people eager learners or forgetters, as we called them, people who wanted to forget about what happened, we asked, number one, how would you describe your level of knowledge about the history of the USSR during the Stalin era? I shudder to think what Professor Hollander's students, how they might have responded to this. We asked... The next question, some say that Russia needs to move forward and forget about the Stalin period. Others say that we should learn more about that period so we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Which of the following statements is closest to your view? And we ask a variety. There's no harm in looking back. We should learn more about the period, avoid repeating the mistakes. We need to forget about the Stalin period, move forward. And we had a third question. Some say there's too much discussion in media, television, private conversations about Soviet-era repressions, and these discussions hurt Russia. Others disagree. Which of the following statements is closest to your view? The punchline in all of this is that we had, um, through statistical analysis, uh, which Ted Gerber um, performed, we found a, a variety of views. The strongest, the modality of ambivalence that people expressed a lot of ambivalence about what they wanted to know. We clearly identified eagers and forgetters, uh, people who really did want to know about the past, people who absolutely didn't want to know about the past, and people who are uncertain. And it was not surprising that uh, you found people who, hard to say, modal response to all three questions, um, and we found complacent uh, respondents. Now, how did those various categories, excuse me, line up with views on Russia's on the right path, 
views on Stalin, collapse as catastrophe, and, and views on human rights. The punchline, ladies and gentlemen, is that there was no clear relationship between the learner categories and attitudes towards these, these issues. There's statistically significant findings, but they're contradictory or counterintuitive relationships. Specifically, if you, if you thought about a measure that, and you know, we can argue that maybe these are not the correct measures, but views on Stalin, whether Russia's on the right path, whether the Soviet collapse was a catastrophe or not, and uh, questions that we don't report here on human rights, that torture is never acceptable. We thought that if you were, you thought Russia was not on the right path, that you really did want to know more about Stalin that you didn't think that the Soviet collapse was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe and that torture is never acceptable, that that would be a category uh, that suggested that you would come out as a coherent worldview, right, and that you would, you would be an eager learner and more human rights ambivalent. Unfortunately, we found no difference on Russia on the right path among eager, ambivalent, or forgetters. We found no differences among eager, ambivalent and complacent on views of Stalin. In fact, the least pro-Stalin were the forgetters, uh, which is a problem, especially if you're thinking about trying to build a robust human rights movement in Russia and trying to bolster Memorial and, and other human rights organizations. Um, the fact that you know, this eager and, and the eager learners and the forgetters end up um, not having significant differences on, on a number of these questions really calls into question, I think, how we, we, we still believe it's important for young people to know about what happened in the past. And we still believe that not knowing about what happened allows for all sorts of things to go on today, uh, including the rise of the security services without reform, um, you know, the second war in Chechnya, uh, control of, of television... But it, it means that it's even more complicated in Russia than, than we had anticipated. Um, the implications of this work going forward are that, frankly, there is no cohesive collective memory. Um, there is, in fact, the possibility that focusing again and again on the role of victims has a way of shutting people down and... Um, it may be that we need to identify more heroes, that a lot of times um, you, you don't hear about the, the few defiant who stand up against Stalin. Um, I remember reading a book by Adam Hochschild not too long ago where he identified this incredibly brave young woman who, at the tender age of, I don't know, something like 16, actually was in an anti-Stalinist cell uh, and was arrested, and all the other folks that she was arrested with were shot. And this woman still lives in Moscow, um, and you know, no one knows about her, uh, and, and there's no documentary made on her life. Um, we have a fundamental problem that this desire to remember, which is really a, a, a kind of an assumption in much human rights work and in transitional justice work, that the desire to remember does not equate with human rights-friendly views, that Memorial does not lack an easily identifiable target audience. Um, so we're left at the end of the research um, with the same question that we had in some ways in the beginning, which was how do you move the memory field forward if you believe that understanding the past is and acknowledging the past is critical to 
um, Russia's political trajectory and challenging the shrinkage of, of political space in Russia, then how do you move it forward in a way that, that doesn't turn people off? Um, and I think, you know, this is, um, you know, parts of this we've published, parts of this is preliminary. We need to see whether or not there's been a shift by 2009, whether or not we see uh, younger generations in 2009 looking any different from how they looked in 05 and 07, um, and whether or not ethnic Russians in Estonia uh, are looking somewhat different. The preliminary findings from the focus groups that we did in March uh, 2009 with there were four groups of ethnic Russians in Estonia. And the, 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 the way in which we sliced and diced that group was we had two focus groups with young ethnic Russians who held Estonian citizenship and we had two focus groups with young Russians who had alien passports. And here's, here's the optimistic note. The young ethnic Russians that had Estonian passports were integrating, that their mentality was much more European. Uh, Russia was not the answer for any of these people in this focus group. They were not looking to Russia to solve their problems. But the young ethnic Russians who had alien passports were, not surprisingly, alienated. They had not integrated. Um, they had not felt the, the, uh, the, 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 the hand of Moscow, if you will. They did, there was not a lot of evidence that, and they didn't believe that Moscow really cared about them, um, but they also didn't believe that Tallinn cared about them uh, as well. Um, and so they're a kind of somewhat vulnerable population that, you know, whoever gets there first, they could lean in, in a different direction. Um, but, you know, as a, as a young person after the Soviet Union collapsed, I went to work in Moscow on political party development, thinking that Russia's trajectory was going in a certain way. And the young ethnic Russians in the focus groups in Estonia who had Estonian citizenship were essentially the young people that we were looking for. Uh, they were... They were interested in the past. Um, they, they acknowledged what happened, uh, and, um, and we're going to end with that. And the idea that in some ways perhaps it was their ability to, you know, these people live in a NATO and EU member country, um, and the battles had been in some ways fought, and you know, they were interested in, in having a normal life and, and being European. So I'm going to end it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Mendelson. And last, but quite certainly not least, Andrei Ilarionov is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He received his PhD in economics from St. Petersburg University in 1987. In 1993-94, he was chief economic advisor to Russian Prime Minister Viktor Chernomyrdin. And in 1994, he became the founding director of the Institute of Economic Analysis. From that perch and others, he has written three books and hundreds of articles on policymaking in Russia. And from 2000 to 2005, he was the chief economic advisor of President Putin. He has been a consistent advocate, both as analyst and writer and policy advisor, 
in Russia for democratic capitalism and a longtime friend of this house, Dr. Ilarinov. Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Our conference uh, today is devoted to the uh, collapse uh, of communism 20 years ago. Um, as a dissenting voice, I'm trying to talk about what did not collapse 20 years ago, where it did not collapse, why it did not collapse, and what can be done, if anything can be done about this uh, now or in future. Um, I would say uh, from the very beginning that if any area in which we can say that collapse of communists did happen, it could be Central Europe. Even Balkans would be uh, uh, Central Europe and Baltic countries. Even Balkans uh, would come under very serious scrutiny, as well as some countries of the former Soviet Union, uh, including Mold Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia. As for the rest of the former Soviet Union, it is absolutely clear that those countries did not come out of the, from the uh, authoritarian slash newly totalitarian state. Um, we do consider uh, communism as um, a system, political, economic, social system that is uh, most clearly opposing free society. Free society certainly has many elements, <clears throat> but the most clear elements are free economic system, free political system, free civil society, rule of law, uh, individual freedoms, and so on. Let's look on some of those elements. Uh, what progress has been achieved, at least in some of those elements, over the last 20 years in the former and some still communist countries? Uh, as for economy areas, probably this area should be considered as one of the most successful. It, is, does, not, it does not mean that uh, this progress has happened without mistakes, without failures, that the progress was even in all countries, that nothing should be done in future. But generally speaking, we could say that the progress in economic reforms in uh, communist countries, in transition countries, have been generally satisfactory. We have to uh, see, we have to uh, have in mind that movements from centrally planned economy towards market economy have been observed in each of the former and still uh, current communist countries without exception. From Poland, East Germany, to Turkmenistan, China, Vietnam. Even Cuba and North Korea have made uh, some steps, though very modest, towards uh, market economy. Second, some of the transition countries, and first of all, Estonia and Georgia, have moved towards uh, market economy very far, even so far, just looking at the doing business of the World Bank ranking, that they outperformed some of the so-called old market economies and became objects of their and international envy. Third, what even more important is that the very ideology of the centrally planned economy in its extreme form has been largely discredited everywhere around the world. Even Chinese Communist Party has changed the constitution of China 
uh, now with provision that private uh, property is immune from prosecution. Even the Russian Communist Party in its program documents have stated that private property has right for existence. I'm not going to, to uh, talk about this topic anymore because we have a uh, wonderful uh, panel uh, with outstanding uh, presenters uh, later today. But I'd like to say this issue, once again, more uh, this issue of moving towards a market economy, I would call it generally satisfactory. But if we look into the other uh, area, meaning uh, democratic political system, liberal democracy, political competition, division of powers, rule of law, independent courts, free mass media, respect for basic civil freedoms and human rights. All these areas do not demonstrate same or similar level of progress in many, and frankly speaking, in most of transition countries. Among 34 uh, transition countries, only 10, which is less than one-third, 29%, seem to abandon communist system in uh, the political, uh, in political area. And they move to electoral democracy. Even sustainability of this progress uh, in some of those countries is still under the question. But more than two-thirds, 71% of transition countries, 24 out of 34 countries, over the last 20 years did not become politically free. I use here the definition and measurement by the Freedom House. It means that those countries were not able to escape out of the communist political system or out of its one of the successes. Half of these 24 countries, it's more than one-third of the uh, total sample, made less than half of way to democratic society, eight of them located in Balkans, Albania, Bosnia, Croatia, Kosovo, Macedonia, Montenegro, Romania, and Serbia, area almost exclusively affected by the Balkan crisis and following wars. But four of them in the former Soviet Union, Moldova, Ukraine, Georgia, and Armenia. What is especially striking that 12 remaining transition countries, another third of the total sample, still have the civil freedoms, political rights status as not free. Among them, four countries where communist parties succeeded to stay in power for all this period without any break. China, Vietnam, uh, North Korea, and Cuba. The other eight countries uh, where communist parties de jure lost uh, power about two decades ago, but somehow the authoritarian or even worse regime have been restored. Those countries are Belarus and Russia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Question that uh, to be asked and puzzles to be solved. This very fact uh, forces us to ask the question, why? Why democratic transition failed in all those countries? Anders Othman, who just arrived uh, in his recent book, poses this question about Russia, about Russia's revolution. Why market reform succeeded and democratic transition not? Professor Oslund is right to pull this question about Russia, but this question is absolutely correct, not only about Russia. It should be uh, asked about much wider uh, group of countries. Another question is was to ask as well, if democratic transition in, let's say, country X failed, even if 
this country succeeded with market reforms, should we claim that the country ex finally escaped from either communist system or any of these successes? Also, it uh, leads to the, another question about the clarification, what does it mean, communist system, uh, an authoritarian or slash totalitarian system. What is especially remarkable that all these eight countries, I'm talking about these former Soviet uh, Union countries, not those four um, outside the former Soviet Union, in terms of civil freedoms and political rights were much freer in the beginning of the 1990s that today. It means at a clear degradation in political uh, and civil freedoms over the last two decades in this part of the world. Uh, and this trend is clearly opposing to the trend in most of the world and in the rest of transition countries. And it, again, uh, le led us to ask the question, why? What makes those countries different? Moreover, the destructions of political and civil freedoms in those countries have been remarkably fast. The three, three countries, Russia, Tajikistan, and Belarus, became champions in the world's league by the speed of destructions of political and civil freedoms in the last two decades. No other country can compete with them uh, in this regard. Only Gambia, Congo Brazzaville, and Solomon Islands following these three countries, but even lagging behind. Venezuela and Zimbabwe lagging behind even much more considerably. So that is why Robert Mugabe was doing his business much slower than his uh, Russian, uh, Belarusian, and Tajik counterparts. To make the situation even more clear, uh, one needs to mention that degradation of political rights and civil freedoms is ob observed not only in not free countries of the former Soviet Union, but also in partly free former Soviet Union countries. In other words, uh, almost all former Soviet countries with exception, only exception of Baltic countries and Ukraine, over the last two decades moved down by the level of their political freedoms. These downward trends is opposite to the trends, once again, uh, around the world in other transition countries in Central Europe uh, and in Baltics and even in Balkan countries. What even more puzzling, at least from the point of view of the widely popular theory of transition, that economies in all former Soviet countries are growing and did grow over last, at least last uh, decade, at least before this recent crisis. Most of them, with very few exceptions, today have GDP per capita and personal consumption per capita higher than they had at the end of the 80s, early 90s, just before the transition. Which means that for the last two decades, those countries became economically relatively freer, wealthier, but at the same time politically less freer, and the rule of law became much weaker than not only one decade ago, but two decades ago, even during the former Soviet rule. Such behavior quite clearly contradicts not only the famous Samuel Lipset, Francis Fukuyama, then end of history paradigm, but also widely spread belief that either wealth or economic freedom or both of them precedes political freedom and provides necessary basis for it, at least in the short 
to medium-term perspective. The experience of post-Soviet countries show that some level of economic liberalization, marketization, or even radical economic reforms, so-called, could happen without political liberalization and could coincide with movement from democracy, even with restoration of political authoritarianism. It is possible to have at the same time policy of demanding or even so-called approaching, for example, membership in the WTO, as uh, it is right now in Russia, and at the same time securing full-scale re-Stalinization of the Russian society. It was discussed a little bit by uh, Sarah Mendelssohn. Uh, with restoring Stalin's cult in Russia as an effective manager, this is a quotation from the school textbooks uh, approved by the uh, leaders of the country, justification of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, as well as justification of the joint attack of Nazi Germany and the Stalin's USSR on Poland in September 1939. That's exactly what's going right now in the country. Moreover, this trend continues with the uh, Iron Curtain, essentially removed, at least for many of those countries, and appearance of possibility, though uneven, for citizens of those countries to travel abroad and for students to study in the West. As it has been mentioned already, Western goods, from food to clothes to techniques, Audi, video cars, do not change substantially political and ideological views of many people in those countries. Moreover, very often, it is young people, and especially students in the best so-called elitarian universities in Russia and some other countries, and especially students who studied in the West, becoming more aggressive proponents and supporters of the authoritarian regime. It means that the traditional theory and strategy of social transition from communist or totalitarian or hard authoritarian society to free society why are only such instruments like removal of the Iron Curtain, securing freedom of exchange of information with the West and from the West, even education of students in the Western universities that have been key elements in this strategy of bringing transition countries to the Western civilization is not supported by practice, at least in some of the former Soviet Union countries. At least they turn out to be not sufficient. Why? How can we explain this phenomenon? Well, five possible explanations that you can find, and just it's been discussed. That's wrong timing. So probably this period of the 1990s, year 2000, is different from 70s and 80s, when a number of uh, authoritarian countries moved to democracy. It is interesting point, but not completely convincing. Distance from Brussels. It's interesting, but uh, Belarus is much closer to Brussels than Kyrgyzstan and Kyrgyzstan is slightly politically freer than Belarus. Uh, Mongolia is much far from Europe, but is freer than Albania, Bosnia, even Romania. It's interesting. Resource curse, it's a very popular topic, but Belarus, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan are not resource-abundant countries, though all of them receive some subsidies from Russia. Interesting that not former Soviet Union oil exporting countries are improving their political freedom status, with notable exception of Venezuela. Confessional heritage, Orthodox and Muslim religions. But Greece, Cyprus, Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro are Orthodox countries, and they're moving in the right direction with different speed, but they're moving. 
Turkey and many Muslim countries, including oil exporters, also moving up, not down. Fifth possible explanation, duration of communist rule. That is very plausible, especially when we look into Baltics, Baltics, partially with Moldova. But Ukraine and Georgia have been with Russia and many other countries the same period under Soviet rule. But they are at least trying to come out of the system. I would like, like to uh, propose my hypothesis, what, what, is, uh, uh, what can, can explain it. But for that, I'd like to mention uh, some kind of the main elements of communist uh, system uh, with uh, uh, probably putting aside some discussion and debate that certainly needed in this area. There are some, seven main elements of communist system. Monopoly on political power, not of a party, but of a person, of a group, or a family, like, for example, Ceausescu family or... Kim's family or Castro's brothers and so on. Second, significant but not necessarily totalitarian uh, control over economy and society. Persistent destruction of any significant centers of not only real opposition to the regime but any potential centers of crystallization of discontent. It is not necessary to have a, a total uh, economically planned system. Poland does, did have uh, private agriculture. There was limited market in Hungary and Yugoslavia. There was some kind of co-host market in the former Soviet Union, the new economic policy. It did not change the nature of the regime. Third, large, highly differentiated and specialized police force with specially trained political police occupying high hierarchical positions in the society. Creation of the special corporation of so-called Siloviki, uh, a corporation of enforcement officers who enforce not law, but power, coercion, force. Ideology of authoritarianism, of loyalty, subordination, submission to authorities, whoever they are. Uh, use for that aim, nationalism, xenophobia, imperialism, superiority complex, and so on. Fifth, attempts of nationalization on, of public consciousness mass propaganda, and cradle to adulthood education with the purpose of creation of the individual completely subordinated to the authorities. Physical extermination of producers and bearers of other ideologies, especially liberal ones, political leaders, government officers, university professors, school teachers, journalists, priests. And it is true from Western Belarus, Western Ukraine in 1939 and Baltic uh, countries in 1940s to Central European countries after the Second World War to South Ossetia last year and Abkhazia in the early 90s. It is remarkable how the same approach has been repeated many decades after uh, what we thought is uh, completely uh, gone in the history. Six. Relative economic success, at least for some time, historically, for uh, those countries, uh, for own history of those countries, partially internationally. It is important to remember that for about 50 years, out of 73 years of the existence of the Soviet Union, it had GDP growth rates higher than the United States. And many people in the Russia today do remember that. In the 1930s, 
um, when uh, democratic countries like U.S., U.K., uh, France did uh, grow by 22% GDP per capita, uh, Nazi Germany, Stalin, USSR, did grow by about 80%. Something similar is happening like uh, right now. Uh, authoritarian countries in the former Soviet Union grow faster than liberal democracy in the West and faster than democratic countries in transition. Since uh, my time is uh, coming to the end, uh, I would skip some part of my uh, comments, but I would try to offer for your consideration uh, five points, five recommend, uh, recommendations that could be uh, subject of uh, heavy criticism and discussion uh, with a very clear purpose. Twenty years ago, about two decades ago, there was a so-called uh, Washington Consensus offered for transformation of former planned economies to market economies, and genuinely speaking, it was relatively successful. We never had, neither 20 years ago nor today, anything like that as uh, some kind of blueprint for uh, political transformation in the communist countries. I'd like to mention five points that, from my point of view, are critically important for success sooner or later. First, the most important condition for survival of a free society is free political system based on political competition, developed civil society, rule of law, personal freedoms. Unfortunately, economic freedoms, including property rights, are the results and sequences of civil liberties and political rights. If political power is captured by enemies of freedom, private property and economic freedoms of any individual might easily be seized, destroyed, confiscated, and, uh, and confiscated. Free political system must be protected and defended at any cost. Second, transition from totalitarian regime to free society can only be successful if the Siloviki corporation of the previous regime, especially secret police, uh, political police machine, this corporation is destroyed. If it is not destroyed, it does regenerate again. Third, for mental, intellectual, and moral health of many people, it is necessary to have a so-called rehabilitation course. Having seen people in North Korea and South Ossetia, I can say that it's, if they will be in some kind of a free society, they would reproduce the same behavior that they're having today. Mm. Fourth, Many people coming out of system of totalitarianism or hard authoritarianism are intellectually and morally brainwashed, weakened, and disabled. A part of economic behavior, it would be in incorrect to expect from them to behave in political and social areas as free people born and raised in free societies. Therefore, process of the restoration of their intellectual and moral health takes time. It could be a long story. It reminds us about the Moses who led his people for 40 years in the desert. Final point, fifth. Society that is living to totalitarianism and authoritarianism is very weak. It needs support from free societies who became free earlier. Not in the form of money, but in the form of intellectual, moral, organizational support. Sometimes it needs different kind of assistance, even defense, even protection in case of aggression from outside. Refusal to provide such help and such assistance based on whatever logic 
and whatever principles might lead to destruction of a new free society, to shrinking of international space of freedom that would eventually make defense of world freedom much harder and at some point even impossible. Thank you very much for your attention. Each of our speakers had 20 minutes. All of you combined have 16, which I don't think will rank as very high on Freedom House's democracy rankings, but it, it's what we have to work with. Um, I want to start with one quick question I own. There are a couple of people who have microphones. Please, um, if you raise your hand and they come to you um, as, I think, how did Ed put it, please say your name and whose ax you're grinding, if I may quickly. I wanted to start with one very quick question of my own. This is the one prerogative of moderator, aside from telling a bad joke or two. Um, and this is directed primarily, although I could easily ask one of Dr. Ilarionov, I want to ask one uh, primarily of the further table of uh, Drs. Mendelssohn and, and Hollander. Uh, is it possible that we should not be as concerned about issues of memory uh, in Russia or in other former communist states as uh, your data might suggest, Dr. Mendelssohn? Uh, because this is just a hypothesis, and I f feel quite free to disagree with it, uh, because the cases of, for instance, Japan and Germany during the Second World War and afterwards might leave us complacent to think that, look, that sort of memorializing, thinking about those events, that, those earlier periods, writing about them, researching about them, coping with those issues is something we might expect to come from outside those states, that we didn't expect Germany to develop the best research and highest consciousness about the Holocaust, for example. We basically expected that to come from victim peoples and victim states and others. Um, and gradually, if anything, the assumption was that it would be an international norm of consciousness on these matters that would make the Germans or Japanese or whomever we might be discussing eventually have to cope with them, and that that might not come indigenously. Um, we all remember people being struck when Daniel Goldhagen went to Germany in the 1990s after publishing his book, and the striking thing to many people was how interested Germans were in his work, as if that wasn't expected of them, that was expected of us. Now, of course, Paul... Dr. Hollander leads us to worry that that won't come from the international community either. Uh, but would you, either or both of you, like to address that hypothesis? Sure. Um, I think you're right to point out um, the German case. If the, the survey data that we're doing was conducted less than 20 years from when the Soviet Union collapsed, and if you'd surveyed Germans 20 years after World War II had ended, um, you might find the same kind of ambivalence. Certainly, you don't, you wouldn't, you probably, I would speculate, you wouldn't see the the kind of sentiment that you saw in the late 60s. And it took uh, 20 plus years for Germans to start dealing with the past. And in part, it was embedded in a larger international context that was questioning uh, a lot of of state action. Mm -hmm. So, what happens outside does matter. On the other hand. We found um, when we, we gathered um, in Budapest in June 2008 to sort of question how do we move the memory field in Russia, and we were talking with our colleagues in, in Chile who um, pointed out that the arrest of or the indictment of Pinochet by the Spanish, something that um, the transitional justice community thought was generally a very good thing, was very alienating to Chileans, that Chileans wanted to own the prosecution of, of Pinochet to the extent that they wanted to prosecute Pinochet. So the outside um, effect can go both ways. You certainly see in, in Serbia it's, it's 
stimulated nationalism. And so part of the long-term project of this work is understanding when do outside efforts backfire, uh, under what conditions do you get a tipping point inside a country where people really want to know? Because sometimes it's, it's a novel, it's a movie, it's, it's tourism. It's, I mean, it, it comes in a lot of different forms, um, and it takes a long time. This is something that unfolds over decades. Why it's important, why it's worrisome is, you know, that's how you get, I think, a second war in, in Chechnya. That's how you get state control over television. That's how you get a rise of of the FSB, it's in the absence of that memory that there is a tolerance. Well, I, I agree. And uh, in line with the last remarks made by Mr. Ilarionov, uh, we can't have attitude change, which is really the precondition of political change, without people being able to make comparisons between various kinds of political systems and political ideologies. So. It is important to know about the past, whether or not it comes from memory or comes from uh, abroad. But without knowing about the past and uh, taking a proper moral attitude about it, uh, we can't expect this kind of uh, profound attitude change, which is in turn the foundation of the civil society. Okay. Should I... Oh, did you want to speak to that as well? Uh, I would like to make one uh, comment uh, concerning memory. I'm not a specialist in this particular area, but um, me as an observer, um, I was completely struck by the extraordinary experiment that have been um, actually done um, in some particular areas um, uh, of uh, our world. Uh, memory is not a very stable substance. And if uh, it is not some kind of, there is no particular uh, persistent efforts to keep and reproduce memory, it disappears. Mm -hmm. uh, the most striking experiment I've seen and, uh, in North Korea, and later, just last year, I've seen it in, uh, to slightly less extent, but even slightly not much in South Ossetia, where the whole people became victims of almost completely erased memory memory, what has happened with them, with this nation, with this society, just before some particular point, just and with some particular parts of even to their current life. Just it does not exist for them at all. And that is why if you consider that they are the same people as surrounding you here or in Europe, it's a great mistake. It's just different people. They are just really with invalid, with a disabled memory and with some kind of psychological nature. Thank you. Make yourself known to our two people with microphones to make it take advantage of what time we have. Go ahead and start picking people. Uh, keep it as short as possible, and I ask the speakers to keep their responses as quick as possible. Uh, I'm Thomas Mrotskowski, American University. I want to continue. This is a comment and a question for all panelists, but especially for Mr. Ilarianov. Um, to continue the sober theme, his, uh, he saw the developments in Central Europe as, as a sort of a sunny spot. Uh, but even there, I would argue that you have a very different uh, situation in the two decades since the collapse of communism. You had the 90s with a very powerful reform movements, and later um, a period where reform slowed down, there was fatigue. Uh, you had very uh, small progress in the year 2000 in terms of rule of law reform, institutional reform, anti-monopoly reform, 
and so on. And the cure for that was supposed to be joining the European Union. Um, interestingly, since 2004, um, this did not turn out to be the, the accelerator for these more profound reforms. And, of course, I'm not talking about the private sector. Uh, the economic reforms were a relative success, but it's the institutional reforms of the judiciary and so on that have really been quite stagnant, and the EU has not seem, does not seem to have provided the solution, the stimulus, that it was, especially in the, the, the two Balkan countries, Bulgaria and Romania. So the, the question is, what would it take to get this kind of uh, reform restarted in uh, Central Europe? I think this is a perfect question for our second session, and we have here outstanding uh, uh, speakers who are ready to answer this and other questions in this area. I would mention only one thing. With all due respect, what is going on in Central Europe, whether it is completely true or partially true or completely not true, doesn't matter. This is a big difference between Central Europe and those former Soviet Union countries, including Russia, where there is no one week that somebody from opposition, intellectual or political, is not murdered. That's a big difference. And where the very existence of four immediate neighbors of the country became not only headache, but real threat for very existence. That's a big difference. Yes, thank you. Ola Havrlishan from uh, University of uh, Toronto. I hate to put a question that's, that's so small compared to all these big issues, uh, so academic. A question to Dr. Mendelssohn. Uh, it, you're no doubt correct that it's troublesome and certainly puzzling that uh, Russian youth uh, have this uh, strong view that, on the whole, Stalin did terrible things, but at the same time he did more good than bad. Uh, well, uh, one interpretation, I think, is the one you implied, that, that this is not nice, uh, and it's not optimistic for the future. But there, is there possibly a different interpretation of these quantitative results? Is it possible that uh, those who think that uh, uh, that Russian youth think that the repression and killing of people was the bad uh, and the achievement of victory over the Nazis and maybe the industrialization of the 30s was the good and the good outweighs the bad? First of all, there's no question that the influence of what is a state campaign and, and the um, the language that um, now Prime Minister Putin uses to talk about Stalin, I think, has an impact. And, and the guidebook for high school teachers, um, there's a new there's a metro station in Moscow where uh, Stalin's words have just been put up. Um, so all of this is having an effect. But I think. Your point about World War II is, is really critical. Um, and what's frustrating is that World War II is both understandably such a sensitive issue, and on the other hand, there, there, there are data that I didn't talk about, which talks about Stalin as the main, that's the reason why there was a victory. The Part of the problem revolves around it's very difficult to have a concrete, full open discussion about what happened in World War II. What, we're in the Estonian and Russian survey. We're going we're gonna to survey on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and see different views of this. Um, 
but a lot of it revolves around World War II. And getting to an understanding of that, I think, probably would unlock a lot of this. Yeah, Peter Whitney, uh, Duke University. Uh, I think Professor Mendelssohn started to answer my I have two quick questions. Started to answer my first question is what do uh, Russian textbooks say about today, about uh, Stalin's atrocities? And if the textbooks are limited, as you just may have suggested, are there other sources in bookstores or websites mm -hmm. or available to Russian citizens? where this is convincingly and, in your opinion, accurately uh, surveyed. And the brief question for Professor Ilyarnov is you mentioned the high growth statistics of the Soviet Union. I've heard a number of people say that those, those were misleading and not, and not very accurate. I'd, I'd like to hear your comment. Thank you. There's a recent uh, guidebook that was uh, for high school teachers that was um, orchestrated, led by... Um, the Kremlin, in which um, I think Andre mentioned Stalin is portrayed as an effective manager, um, and there's a relatively, uh, well, it's a totally truncated discussion of what happened um, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, early 50s. But, um, and I may depart, I, I'm sure I will depart from my colleagues when I tell you that I've been following quite closely whether or not there's any difference between Mr. Medvedev and Mr. Putin. And I, I conducted a bit of an experiment this summer where we uh, convened a civil society summit in Moscow to which President Obama came um, in July, um, July 7th. And I will tell you that that is a meeting that couldn't have been done, I believe, two years ago. We had genuine human rights activists. We had a variety of, of folks from the United States and Russia on, on civil society. I mention it only because um, this last week, I read that the um, Gulag Archipelago has become required reading in, I believe it's high schools. I've been at the beach for the week, so my news is coming somewhat, um, well, from the newspapers as opposed to the Internet. Um, the fact that, that if that's true, that there is now um, Gulag Archipelago as compulsory reading, that's a very interesting approach. On the other hand, we also have seen the um, establishment of a, a commission on his, historical falsification, which is extremely worrisome, which has um, numerous non-historians, that is, FSB intelligence officers on it. So there's, there's a struggle going on, um, and we need to know more about you know, why the Gulag Archipelago is suddenly seen to be important reading and whether or not there's some space there. We have time for one very quick question and quick answer. Uh, just a little question to me uh, concerning oh, statistics. Uh, uh, just uh, I'm using non-official statistics, which is absolutely irrelevant. Certainly, I use uh, corrected and adjusted statistics uh, according to the Western standards. So that is just uh, national accounting standards. So that is why it's according to them. Uh, Soviet Union has improved substantially this relative position towards the United States uh, since uh, mid uh, since early 20s until mid 70s. Only uh, in the last 15 years it was declining quite quite fast. But so just as a fact of life. But if I may just mention uh, one fact, uh, just uh, following what uh, Sarah had said concerning these textbooks, the official formula that have been approved by uh, then uh, President uh, Putin 
that uh, Stalin was effective manager, though made several mistakes that have been reproduced uh, as kind of in many historic textbooks around the country. And last maybe point, that just a few days ago, uh, Mr. Medvedev has published an article in Gazeta.ru, and he invited everybody to comment on this uh, article. And thousands of uh, responses from some kind of different people came to Kremlin immediately. But it was remarkable that he himself or his apparatus has chosen only one comment, one answer, on this, uh, on this uh, article that happened, and he actually, it was a uh, broadcaster, TV broadcaster for the whole country. He recommended pr uh, government and administration to took this uh, advice uh, carefully and probably some kind of studied and uh, spread around the country. This advice came from the person who openly claimed that he's fascist. He wrote in his blog, I'm not a communist, I'm not a nationalist, I'm a fascist. And I, th I think that uh, what uh, Hitler in Germany and Stalin in the former Soviet Union does was a lot of right things. And it is now uh, widely TV broadcasted for the whole country. Do we have to? One more quick, as I say, one more very quick question now and one quick answer. Jim Norman, I just finished an appointment at the Library of Congress, and now I'm just working on two independent research projects. But uh, we've been, there's been some talk about the difference between uh, Central Europe as the success stories and the former Soviet states and whatnot. This may be uh, primarily for you, Professor Mendelssohn, but any of the panelists would be. I'd welcome any of their comments. Uh, there seems to be growing extremism and intolerance, especially in Slovakia, the Czech Republic, uh, in Hungary. I, it's been there for a bit longer. And so the, the uh, tolerance of, like, the Roma, for instance, or of immigrants, there are programs in the Czech Republic now to send immigrants back. And uh, there's a town in Slovakia that's actually paying Roma to leave. Um, it may not be too long until we see something like murders every week in these countries if the trajectory continues to go up. How do you see that? Are these success stories going to turn into failures? Um, I think the hardest issue to work on, I've long thought the hardest issue to work on, is Roma rights anywhere in Europe or former Soviet Union. Um, there are lots of hate crimes that go on. Um, Human Rights First has a whole program that document, documents these. Um, I thought the question was going to go in the direction of, are there ways in which Central European countries have dealt with their past in ways that are different from Russia, and does that affect the trajectory? And the case that I'm most familiar with is Poland, where Poland adopted the same approach, essentially, that Germany did. They have a state institution that uh, spends millions of dollars on understanding the past and various programs. I mean, the bottom line is um, without significant investment in uh, understanding what happened, uh, you're not going to see m much of a difference. Um, so at least the case of Poland is an interesting counter. Just a brief addition to this. In Hungary, actually, many gypsies have been murdered in the last year or two. And there is very strong anti-gypsy sentiment. And uh, again, these and many other matters cannot be attributed to economic progress or the lack of it. But uh, what is also interesting in Hungary, I understand that what people tell me, that many of the people in the radical right-wing movement are highly educated university graduates. 
though there you have it, our Western optimism about the benefits of education and higher standards of living. We reconvene here in less than 15 minutes, 11.45. Please thank with me Drs. Hollander, Mendelssohn, and Ilarionov. <laughs>